team. Um, we are just in the closing section here. We're not going to touch the whole um, last chapter, but we're going to touch on the last half of the last chapter. Um, so I'm going to jump right in to it. We're going to be at verse 8. It starts out by saying this. Absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, he constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. When all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. Fear God and keep his commands, because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. God, as we unpack the truths that we're about to um, just read, I pray that it would press the truths deeply into our heart, Lord, that we not just read these words or just sit through another message, but Lord, that you would encounter us here tonight. God, would the words that um, I speak be um, from you? And Lord, if anything is just a result of my fallenness, may it not be heard. God, we love you and we thank you for this time and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. So I just kind of like want to zoom out a little bit on the book of Ecclesiastes. We're finishing it up today. And if you could like rewind a little bit, kind of over the things that we've uncovered in Ecclesiastes, what are some of those main themes that Solomon hit on in the book of Ecclesiastes? What were some of those things that you thought, you thought kept coming up over and over again? Just the futility of life. Yeah. Someone else? Pretty much sums it up. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he goes around saying other things. Yeah, Megan? Yeah, wisdom. Yeah. Awesome. Fear God. Yeah, that comes up a number of times. Money. Yeah. Yeah, just the lack of importance on material things. He says here, this is so crazy. Like everything is futile. It's all vapor, like meaningless. And Solomon said, like, says some really profound things. And we could read this book and think, man, this is such a drainer. <laughs> like this book does not leave me feeling like warm and fuzzy inside. He says everything's meaningless. And it's like Solomon has indulged in all of the things that the world is telling us to indulge in. He's partaken in all of that. And he's like, come to the conclusion. I've experienced it. I've, I've arrived in some way. And I still have this hole in my heart. Like it doesn't satisfy me. It doesn't do the job. He does tell us to rejoice and enjoy the good things of life and but he, he certainly can enjoy those good things. We can enjoy those good things. And not everything is meaningless. But the thing is this, everything is meaningless 
without God, without Jesus. Everything certainly is meaningless in life without Jesus. Think about it. All the times you've had incredible mountaintop experiences, that would be all that there is to those mountaintop experiences. It doesn't get any better than that, truly, without Jesus. And the moments and seasons and experiences that you've had that are dark and gloomy and in the valley, you're also, without Jesus, not promised that it would get better. Maybe you don't think that way, though, that maybe, maybe you do have God in your life. Maybe you have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and he's made his space in, in your heart, and God is a part of your weekly rhythm or daily rhythm. You come and go to church more than you miss, but it's still a battle, and it's still a grind to bring Jesus in your everyday life. It's a struggle to bring Jesus to school with you. It's a struggle to bring Jesus to work with you. It's a struggle to make Jesus number one in your life, even though God is an active part of your life. It's still a struggle and it's still a grind. And here's what ends up happening. Even though this, you, you want God to be an active part of your life, but it's still a struggle, here's what ends up happening. It's that we try to shove God out of the very things that he created and provided for us. We actively try to finagle God out of the equation. We enjoy the friends and the things and the places and don't want to acknowledge that God was the one that actually provided the people, that God provided the places and that God provided the things, but rather we want to say that we worked hard for that. That we actually deserved that because we worked so hard. Or maybe we got this particular community or circle of friends, or maybe we got this certain position on the team or in the play or whatever the case is because we worked for it rather than God providing it. We're quick to turn our backs on God and want nothing more from him than to just provide And the closing remarks that Solomon brings are so, so good and actually incredibly rich for us this evening. He's going to point to something that's going to bring everything into proper perspective for us in our hearts. So I want to kind of visit verse 8 again. It says this, absolute futility, says the teacher. Everything is futile. And I'm so glad Ecclesiastes doesn't end with this verse. I mean, what if it did actually just everything's futile, the end. Like what an awful book, <laughs> you know? This would be an awful book of the Bible. And I would question, why is it in here? <laughs> you know, the Solomon says, everything's futile. It's a vapor. It's all a waste, every ounce of it. See, the book actually starts, chapter one, it, it starts, it talks about this. It introduces this idea early. And then Solomon starts to bring the book to a close and he brings back that same idea, but he doesn't actually finish the book because we still have verses nine through 14. But he does revisit this idea. And I want to read verses nine through 12 before we jump back in. In addition to the teacher being a wise man, 
He constantly taught the people knowledge. He weighed, explored, and arranged many proverbs. The teacher sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. The sayings of the wise are like cattle prods, and those from masters of collections are like firmly embedded nails. The sayings are given by one shepherd. But beyond these, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books, and much study wearies the body. So verses 9 through 14 kind of sound a little different. Like the point of view's kind of shifted a little bit. Like it sounds like Solomon is either talking in third person, which is really annoying if you have a friend that talks in third person. If you're the person that talks in third person, stop it. But it sounds like he's either talking about himself or there's like a student review going on with like the teachings that Solomon has done. So it could be a student that's kind of talking in this way, or it could just be Solomon talking in the third person. But Solomon's basically, or whoever is summarizing the benefit and privilege of wisdom in our life. So the teacher, like this passage is saying, like he spent a lot of time painting pictures of wisdom and doing so accurately and faithfully. And he says in verse 12, my son, be warned. There is no end to the making of many books. And I thought that was an interesting take. So I kind of looked it up. Do you know about how many books are published each year? And if you're in middle school, I appreciate your enthusiasm. (laughs) But how many books were published, do you think are published each year? Dude, that's what you said. Is that the guess you had last time? Oh, so okay. Well, thank you for playing. <laughs> so, uh, 200, that's a good guess. <laughs> uh, 2 million? What other guesses? How many books are published each year? Huh? 10,000? 1 million? 10 million. Who said 10 million? Nice. <laughs> 10 million. It's actually 1 million. Ding, 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 ding. Good job, Cooper. Um, one million books are published, roughly, published each year. Now, if I were to like publish a book, that'd be a really big deal. I would, it'd be, I'd be amped if that was the case. But just think, like someone is getting a book published and they're thinking, my book is going to solve all the problems of humanity right here, you know? Or maybe they're not thinking like, oh, all the problems of humanity, but maybe I'm going to fix this certain problem that a lot of us face, you know, and there's this a never-ending cycle of books, like people's own thoughts and opinions being written down and being published, and it's, it's like a never-ending cycle of people's opinions or self-help material. And Solomon's right. There is no end to the making of many books. Like, we shouldn't have, if there was really the source of wisdom I don't think we would need the plethora and slew of books to be published if they truly met all the answers in life. Like we have God's word and we have the gospel and we don't need, I'm not saying like self-help books aren't beneficial, but there shouldn't have to be this never-ending cycle of people's thoughts and opinions on matters whenever God's word is what truly matters in ways more heavily than people's opinions and thoughts. Verses 13 and 14, when all has been heard, the conclusion of the matter is this. 
fear God and keep his commands because this is for all humanity. For God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. See, this is it. This is all that Solomon has for us. He's closing the book of Ecclesiastes out and he's like, I wanna conclude with this. Fear God. Fear God. And on the surface, it sounds like, well, that's a little underwhelming, Adam. Like, and I get it because I, I wanna also acknowledge, like if you grew up in the church, you grew up going to Sunday school, you've sat through a number of sermons before, it is so difficult to become familiar with scripture and to keep hold of your wonder. Sometimes familiarity will blind us from the greatness and goodness of God. It's our familiarity that gets in the way and really robs us of our wonder. And sometimes we lose sight of the reality that we should fear God. And it's not the fact that we need to be afraid of him, but there does need to be this reverent awe before him that we should just have this wonder about him. And I think many of us, we, we grew up in the church, and I, and I think I can honestly say, I can say this for myself, that there are times, there are seasons, you may even be there now, where we have lost our awe, where I don't fear God. And it's not the fact that you're like not scared of God, it's just that I don't really care. I don't wonder. I don't ponder. I don't adore. I've lost my awe. Putting God in his proper place, fearing him, having that reverent awe. When we put God back on his throne where he belongs, when we put God in his proper place, it will naturally put ourselves in our proper place. Fearing God places all of our hopes, our fears, our dreams, our agendas, our priorities in their proper place in this life under the foot of Jesus because everything is meaningless without Jesus. Jesus brings meaning to everything. He brings meaning to everything. Every hope, every dream, He even brings meaning to your hurts. He brings purpose to your mishaps. Everything, when put in its proper place, fills our life with meaning and with purpose. We need to fear God. And it's when we fear God, when we put him back in his proper place, obedience flows. See, we need to fear God truly, which helps us to obey freely. And we try to get those mixed up. We try to like reverse those. I'm going to do these things and that will help me love God more. But it's it's actually the reverse of that. It's that we fear God. We put him in his proper place and obedience flows from that. When we truly fear God, obedience flows freely. 
This played out in my life when I was around a junior in high school. I couldn't tell you where I was. I'd like to say it was from my youth pastor's riveting message where my life changed, but I don't know if that was the case. But I realized for the first time that the gospel truly shapes every aspect of my life. It was groundbreaking to me that I didn't have to have separate specific circles in my life. Like I think a lot of us, if we were to like label the orders or the priorities that I have in my life, it would be God, family, friends, work, yada, yada, whatever the list is for you. But I realized one day that it wasn't the fact that I needed to have God number one, something else number two, something else number three. It was that I needed to make God number one in my life. I needed to make God number one when it came to my friends. I need to make God number one when it comes to my family. I need to make God number one when it comes to work and why I work. I need to make God number one when it comes to why I'm on this sports team and why I'm there. I need to make God number one in all of these different circles that God has placed me in. And I used to think that God in church just used to be its own little circle and I had all these other separate circles, but rather it's how does the gospel shape this circle? How does the gospel shape this specific circle? The gospel truly shapes every aspect of our lives. It's like, how do I make God number one in this? How do I make God number one in, not just in my life, but how do I make God number one in every aspect of my life? That was the question I had to grapple with and had to wrestle with and had to get actually creative and pray for creativity. And I think we forget to pray that sometimes, that God does answer the prayer for creativity. And not the fact that you just need to be a creative, artsy person, but the reality is that sometimes I need help in figuring out a solution to something. So Lord, give me the creativity to help figure out this problem. Because right now I need to figure out how the gospel can take shape in my family. So what does that look like? Help me, God. God, what does it look like to actually have a friends group and to actually let the gospel shape and mold me in the area of my friend group? Help me in that. Give me creativity. God, what does it look like to let the gospel abound on my sports team? God, you've given me this area to be influential in. And God, I need your creativity in doing that. How does the gospel shape that? God, with my friend that doesn't know the Lord, How does the gospel shape how I interact with him? What does that look like? God, give me the creativity, help me. So that's the only question I have for you today and in our D group time, how does having God change every aspect of your life? What does it look like to let the gospel shape every area of your life? And I want us to take some time actually pondering that. Does God affect every aspect of your life? How does God shape every aspect of your life? So I want us to spend some time focusing on that um, today. So let me pray, and then we will dismiss to our D groups. God, we, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you've given us a gift in scripture that we are not just left here to figure things out on our own, Lord, but you have given 
not only just the wisdom in scripture, but God, you've sent Jesus to live a life that we should have lived. God, to live wisdom for us. And in the middle of our situations and scenarios, when life gets hard or troubling, we also don't have to figure things out on our own, Lord, but that you guide us and direct us in those through your spirit. We're grateful for that. So Lord, as we enter into our time of D groups and, and community, would you help us in what it looks like to live a life that honors you in every area of our life? God, help us in this. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, you are dismissed to your D group.